podcast series, The Will Forgeries, A Forgotten Sensation, presented by Audrey Collins. This talk was recorded on the 24th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. So, uh, welcome to the National Archives for yet another in our series of talks. Uh, the other piece of paper on your seats are forthcoming attractions. There's only one more talk left in January, but there's a whole lot of interesting things going on in February. We've got a couple of, uh, sort of a new departure events then. But um, back to today's talk, it's a story. Will forgeries, a forgotten sensation. Now, I don't read an awful lot of fiction. I don't need to, because some of the true stories that I come across while I'm researching, or usually researching something else, and I just happen to notice, some of the true stories that I come across are better than fiction. This one I came across because I was uh, doing some research into fraud, which I'm very interested in, not in a practical hands-on sense, just in the theoretical academic sense, but I was very interested in the business of fraud. And I was actually doing some research into the fraudulent use of birth and death certificates, specifically people using death certificates to scam insurance companies, which was quite a, a prevalent round about the, the time when this, uh, these incidents take place, which was the 1840s. And I came across some mentions to something called the will forgeries. And this was in various sources, newspapers and some official documents. And it was always said in such a way that it seemed to be assumed that you would know exactly what they were talking about, rather in the way I think that if somebody says the great train robbery, even though it was 50 years ago, we all know what great train robbery we're talking about. And the will forgeries seems to have fallen into this category. And the actual story is pretty amazing. Uh, it falls very firmly in the category of you couldn't make it up. If you wrote this as fiction, you would probably be told, could you tone it down a bit? It's a bit far-fetched. It's a bit melodramatic. And some of the names are really quite Dickensian. Um, but this is absolutely true. Now, the records where, that I found this in, some of them are records here in the National Archives. There are lots of things elsewhere, things I haven't looked at yet. And an awful lot is in online newspaper resources and um, quite a few other places. The research was not at all difficult once I started looking. If you um, were, th were thinking of this as uh, archaeology, for example, you wouldn't need time teaming with the geophys and the helicopters and the big JCBs. You would find most of this by field walking. It really was that easy. It's very close to the surface. It's very easy to get at. And I'm slightly surprised that nobody has made a big deal out of it before. Well, practically nobody. So that's why it's called the forgotten sensation, because at the time, in the 1840s, it was the talk of the town. Lacking TV and cinema, this was what people were queuing round the block for, to go and hear the proceedings at this trial at the Old Bailey. Now, there's a whole cast of characters. And the two main people involved are Barber and Fletcher, William Henry Barber and Joshua Fletcher. Now, William Henry Barber was a solicitor. Relatively young man, but he was quite successful. In 1843, he was only in his 30s, but he was uh, um, a partner in a very successful practice. They weren't litigators. They did the bread and butter sort of things. They did probate work. Uh, but he was making a nice living. Joshua Fletcher, well, Joshua Fletcher was a lot of things. You look at him in the census, he is described as a surgeon, and that's what he's qualified as. And at some point, he does seem to have uh, run a business as a, as a chemist and druggist. But he did a lot of other things as well. He would probably have described himself as an entrepreneur, the businessman. Um, he had a finger in many pies. And he was worth a very great deal of money, a lot more money than you would earn from just being uh, a surgeon. What he certainly was, was a con man. 
And he was a pretty good con man. Not good enough to avoid being caught, although even once he was caught, he didn't do too badly, eventually. But in the early 1840s, he was a surgeon businessman, and he operated in a, a business, well, one of his several business interests, were what you uh, might now describe as air hunting. If you ever watch the TV program Air Hunters, and if you're aware of the, the sort of business that they do, these are people who perfectly reasonably and legally find sums of money which are sitting around unclaimed and find the person who is rightly entitled to that money, track them down, tell them that they will hear something to their advantage if they contact this box number, and then they will reunite this person with this money that they didn't know they were entitled to, for which they take a commission, quite a hefty commission, but then 80% or 70% of something is a whole lot better than 100% of nothing. So this is a kind of business which was, goes on perfectly legitimately today, and it did in the 1840s. And this is one of the kinds of businesses that Joshua Fletcher was involved in. Um, he did have offices in uh, Newbridge Street in Blackfriars, which happened to be the same address where Mr. Barber and his partner, Mr. Merrick Bircham Bircham, now how's that for a Dickensian name? Bircham and, Bar and um, Barber were in practice together and quite a successful practice with a very good high turnover. And as he was walking to his office one morning in December 1843, Mr. Barber must have been feeling rather pleased with himself because at a relatively early age, he had amassed quite a fortune. He had a very good, prosperous business. He'd built up a fairly substantial law library. He owned a number of properties that he rented out. He was doing very nicely. Life was good. And then the police came along and arrested him. He was utterly gobsmacked. He was stunned. He had no idea that this is just a silly mistake. It's all a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. It'll all be sorted out. And he remained in this state of shock, it seems, for some weeks. Now, what had happened was that Joshua Fletcher and a number of other people, but Fletcher was the ringleader, he was the mastermind, had been involved in quite a clever scam. And this is why I was looking at fraud concerning mainly birth and death certificates. If you think about it hard enough, you can figure out ways of obtaining money uh, by um, illegal means using forged or fraudulent documents. And Fletcher had hit on one of these. He knew someone who was called Mr. Christmas, who was an employee of the Bank of England. And the Bank of England had large numbers of accounts or people with stock in the Bank of England, but whose, stock had, whose accounts had become dormant. And if an account had become dormant for a certain length of time, nobody had done anything to it or claimed it, eventually it would go to the consolidation of the national debt, which is roughly what happens these days if someone dies intestate and there are no heirs found, the money goes to the crown. And this was the sort of thing that used to happen with the Bank of England. Well, what Mr. Christmas would do is he would tell Mr. Fletcher that these, these are some accounts that are dormant, and Fletcher would then try and seek out the rightful owners uh, of these sums of money and assist them with their claim and take a commission. I don't know how much, but I suspect it was quite a generous one. This requires a lawyer, and this is where Mr. Barber came in. And he used to handle the legal side. Well, I should imagine this was a good steady income because Fletcher was rather good at this. And a lot of what he did was perfectly legal and perfectly fine. And then it occurred to him, when he was looking for the uh, beneficiary of one particular uh, stock and couldn't find the person, and this sometimes happens, if you watch Air Hunters or if you, if you ask anybody who's involved in that business, there are times when, despite your best efforts, there is no next of kin, there is no heir at law, and there is nobody to find. Well, 
eventually it occurs to people like Fletcher that if there is nobody who can legitimately claim this money, maybe it's possible to divert it to some other worthy cause. And this is pretty much what he did. And this is where I came in looking at the uh, death certificates because when civil registration was introduced in 1837, in almost every way this was a much more uh, thorough and detailed and comprehensive system of recording births, marriages and deaths than the previous method of recording them in parish registers, which was a bit hit and miss. However, there was one very substantial flaw. In church registers, you have baptisms, marriages and burials. In civil registration, you have births, marriages and deaths. Well, to conduct a burial, you need a body, or at least I suppose an extremely heavy box. And you have to have this body buried. But to register a death in the early years of registration, all you had to do was to go along to the registrar and say, Granny's dead. And he would say, I'm terribly sorry, give me all the details. And you would then give all the details. And he would write you out, and in those days it was, was a he, an absolutely legal piece of paper, which you could then present to all sorts of authorities as proof of the death of a particular person. Now, that particular person may still be alive, or they may have never existed. But you then had a legal piece of paper which you could turn into money by various means. And this is what occurred to Fletcher, and this is what he started doing. He would find an account in the Bank of England that was dormant, courtesy of uh, the inside information from Mr. Christmas, and he would seek out the heirs. And if, I suppose, he found somebody easily, it was just as easy to do the decent legal thing. But in the ones where there was definitely no... Um, identifiable heir or one that he thought was fairly certain would not claim, all you had to do then was to write out a will, which is not strictly speaking a forgery, because you just wrote it out. It wasn't a copy of something. You didn't even forge somebody's signature because you couldn't really check on the signature of a dead person anyway, could you? All you had to do was to write a will in favour of some named person. You then went to um, any bank of your choice and opened an account in the name of that person and then took your will and your death certificate um, along to Doctors Commons where you uh, would then get the will probated and you could then go to the Bank of England with the big Mary Poppins carpet bag and collect all the money or transfer it to an account. Now, that's how the scam worked. Joshua Fletcher and William Henry Barber and um, the, the other accomplices, they were all, first of all, arraigned at the Mansion House in the City of London uh, in December. Um, no, they were arrested in December, I beg your pardon, in February 1844. So they had been cooling their heels in prison for quite a while. Um, they were arraigned at the Mansion House, but the, court, the case, which turned out to be extremely large, there was a very great deal of money involved, was not surprisingly referred to the Old Bailey. But this is what they would have done. They would have gone to the prerogative will office, Doctors' Commons, and for anybody who's been to um, Somerset House when that still had the will registry, it hadn't really changed very much elsewhere. They still had the same shelves. Um, and that's where they would go, get probate of this completely fictitious will, and then armed with the probate documents, they would then go to the Bank of England and claim the money. And this worked a treat. Except that like an awful lot of criminals, they get greedy. And it's when you get greedy, you start making mistakes. Or people start noticing that something isn't quite right. And it was actually the investigators on behalf of the Bank of England who thought, it's funny, there seemed to be an unusually large number of dormant accounts that are suddenly springing to life. It just seemed a bit too many to be 
completely kosher. So they started investigating. And it was these investigations that actually led to the arrest of Fletcher and Barber and their accomplices. Now, poor old Barber was just completely stunned, as I've said. He had absolutely no idea of what was going on. Most of the work that he'd been doing was absolutely properly above board, but he had a long association with Fletcher. So it wasn't unreasonable from the point of view of the prosecutors and the investigators to think that they were all in it together. Poor Mr. Barber. He really does seem to have been in a state of just stunned amazement and because I, he was basically an honest man and really a bit innocent, I think. Uh, it's, oh no, it's just a terrible mistake. It'll all be sorted out. My partner, Mr. Bertram, he'll vouch for me. Mr. Bertram was doing no such thing. Mr. Bertram was not to be found anywhere. If you read several of the newspaper accounts of this, uh, there's no proof, but I'm, the very strong inference was that he was lying low. He was keeping well out of the way because he did not want to be tainted by association with his uh, colleague and partner, who was utterly innocent of all these charges. And this uh, notice appeared in the London Gazette in February 1844, at which time you will remember that poor Mr. Barber was still languishing in prison. And it says, Notice is hereby given that the partnership hitherto existing between us, the undersigned William Henry Barber and Merrick Bircham Bircham, carrying on business at 28 Newbridge Street, Blackfriars, in the City of London, as attorneys and solicitors, was this day dissolved by mutual consent. Oh. All debts due to and owing by the said partnership will be received and paid by the said Merrick Bircham Bircham. Now, I'm not sure that that was strictly true. I don't think that was 100% uh, voluntary um, dissolution of the partnership. Um, whether they got a signature out of Mr. Barber in prison, I have no way of knowing, but it does say, as witness our hands. Anyway, that was the, that's the only evidence we've got of Mr. Bircham doing anything at all. Uh, other than keeping out of the way. The other thing that Barber had not done, apart from not continuing his legal practice, because he wasn't in a position to, was I mentioned that he had uh, several properties which he'd been renting out. Obviously, he hadn't been collecting the rents on these because he was um, in jail. And because he was still in this state of stunned amazement, he didn't do anything at all to protect his property. And in the course of this trial which was to come and the events that followed, he literally lost everything. Now the word literally is overused. In this case, it is absolutely not, as you will see a bit later on. But the first thing that he lost was first of all his business and all of his uh, assets, his law library, everything just went, it was sold. How many of the proceeds went to Bircham, I don't know. Um, maybe I'll find out one day. But Barber is there, he is in prison, as indeed is Fletcher, but at least Fletcher knows he's guilty. And there they were from December right through to February, and then the trial was referred to the Old Bailey. And that was in April when they appeared at the Old Bailey. Now, this was a big sensation it was reported very extensively in lots of newspapers, including the Illustrated London News. And there are lots and lots of accounts of it. Obviously, there was the old Bailey Sessions papers themselves, which are online. Now, some of the other uh, of the cast of characters, Mr. and Mrs. Sanders, or Saunders, but they usually appear to be Sanders. This was a couple from Devon, and they were um, involved in this. They were the, the people who actually went and did stuff. Fletcher was the mastermind. Barber did the legal stuff. But these were the two, or two of the people, who did some of the dirty work. They would go and impersonate people. They would go and lodge documents. Sanders would go and uh, report a death and get a death certificate. Um, he was the general sort of gopher. 
And Mrs. Sanders, his wife, uh, she would impersonate um, people, you know, the, the beneficiary of some, um, well, fictitious deceased person. There was also her sister, Georgiana Dory, who's, who was married. Her husband seems to have had nothing to do with this whatsoever. But Mrs. Dory was the other one. The, 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 the two women, their maiden name was Richards, and their mother was also involved. By the time the case came to trial, she had died. But if you wanted an old lady uh, to appear as part of your cast of characters, that was Mrs. Richards. But she escaped justice, because death got her first. And uh, Mrs. Dory, uh, or Georgiana Dory, she, her, her disguise in one case is described in some detail and actually illustrated in the Illustrated Police News. So um, there, there was a lot, of, a lot of trouble was taken over this. Now, there were a number of cases that were brought to court. There were actually quite a number where there had been a fraud. But there were only about two or three cases were used as the specimens for the charges because these were the ones where there was the best evidence. And you don't need to prove somebody guilty of a couple of dozen frauds. Two or three really good ones is enough to get them convicted and sentenced. And the, one of them in particular was the will, um, involved the will of a, a lady called Anne Slack. Now, this is the PCC will of Anne Slack. We have it here. You can see it on our online records if you want to. And um, we even have the original copy of it, which I was rather surprised by, because I thought that might have been produced in evidence. So I thought we might have it um, as an exhibit in a court case. But no, it's in there with the original PCC wills. And it's a fairly short will. It says, Anne Slack, spinster, formerly of Smith Street, Chelsea, but now of South Terrace, Pimlico. Make this my last will and testament, etc., etc. Basically, she leaves everything to her niece, Emma Slack. If you look in the um, death indexes, you will find that there is a death of an Anne Slack in 1843. And if you bought the certificate, you would see that she was a spinster aged 70-something. And she had a considerable amount of money in stocks in the Bank of England. And there it is. It's proved London on the 22nd of March, 1843. So it has been proved. So somebody claiming to be, Anne, to be Emma Slack, but who was in fact Georgiana Dory in disguise. Not entirely sure why the disguise was really necessary. Uh, but anyway, that they did. They did dressing up and everything. So... Georgiana Dory had posed as the, as the poor, bereaved niece, Emma Slack, uh, got probate of her aunt's will, took it to the Bank of England, and collected the money. That was in 1843. This is the 1851 census showing Anne Slack, who is aged, in 1851, she was aged 43. The, her age is a little um, vague, uh, now, she was, a, she was indeed a spinster, but as you can see, very considerably younger than uh, the, this supposed 72-year-old woman who lived at, by the way, of course, at an entirely fictitious address. There was a slight element of farce in this because uh, Sanders, who was the one who did all the, the gophering and going to the registrars and getting certificates, uh, he doesn't seem to have been all that terrifically good at it because they originally re registered the death in Bath, um, and then he, but he'd made a mistake or hadn't checked what the registrar wrote down, and the registrar had actually written stack, not slack. So when um, he went to get a copy of the, uh, the, the death certificate, and he found that it, he couldn't find it because it, it was indexed as stack, not slack, and he said, oh, but this is a mistake. And it turned out that you could only get this changed if the person who'd made the original registration signed an affidavit. Decided this was probably too much trouble to go to and it would draw attention to yourself. So they just went and recorded another death. So that's why the, the death was actually registered in London, because it already had rather a failed attempt at recording it in Bath. 
even then when he went to the registrar in London, uh, he forgot that registrars, who were often medical men or poor law union officials who knew their area, said, oh, I don't think I know that address. Whereabouts is that in Pimlico? Um, uh, um, I'm not sure, etc." He got away with it. I mean, the registrar wasn't that interested. But um, it just shows you that it wasn't quite as meticulously planned as it might have been. A little more attention to detail might have been a good idea. But anyway, up to a point, this worked. Now, the real Miss Slack was worth a very considerable amount of money. I have a feeling that she was um, maybe not all there. She's with her married sister and her brother-in-law, and her brother-in-law seems to do all the speaking for her. Although she was worth a very great deal of money, her requirements were fairly modest. And until about 1833, by which time you know she was well into adulthood, there was still a trustee looking after her income for her under the terms of her father's will. But the trustee died and her brother-in-law took over looking after her financial affairs. But there plainly was so much money sloshing about that they'd um, just overlooked the several thousand pounds that were sitting in the Bank of England. So there is Miss Anne Slack. She doesn't, in the end, ever leave a genuine will, um, which I guess is because she had a life income under the terms of her father's will. And... She, they had actually been contacted by Fletcher and Barber, who said that they were looking for uh, the beneficiaries of uh, a family name of, of Slack, and uh, they made extensive inquiries. Now, think about it. If you are carrying out a perfectly legal air hunting business, what a fantastic cover for making really in-depth inquiries of people and then saying, I'm terribly sorry to have troubled you, taken up all your time, but the result of our inquiry shows that I'm afraid you're not actually the person that we're looking for. Thank you for your time. And this is how they got an awful lot of information out of uh, the, sl uh, the, the Slack and Foskett families, um, which must have reassured them that there is not a hope in Hades that this woman is going to start looking for the money that we know she's got in the Bank of England, but of which she is plainly, utterly ignorant. So that's how they knew they were free and clear to um, plunder the Bank of England. But isn't it interesting, though, that the will that we have here and the death certificate, uh, which is held by the General Register Office, there is absolutely nothing about either of those documents that alerts you to the fact that they are complete works of fiction. And I do wonder if somebody was doing a one-name study on the surname Slack and they came across this where they could spend years trying to figure out where on earth this person fitted in. Now, I don't wish to worry you, but there are quite a number of forged documents knocking about. Not every certificate that you get uh, from the General Register Office is all that it seems. Unless a, there is a court order saying, please amend this document, or a, an individual says there is an error of fact or substance, it doesn't get changed. It's still there. So think about that, especially one-namers. Well, that was the specimen case. There were two or three others, but that's one of the main ones, and it illustrates how the scam worked, which I have to say is actually quite clever. They couldn't have done this... Uh, Indefinitely, in 1874, registration law was tightened up quite a lot. And one of the significant changes was that to get a death certificate, you needed to have a medical certificate. So a doctor had to look at a body, um, establish that, yes, it was definitely dead, and that it had died of some medical cause. So it was... There were all sorts of other scams that you could pull after that, and I've researched some of those. But this particular one, with making a, getting a death certificate, which was totally fictitious, you couldn't do that then. But this was, uh, this was a good, good few decades in the future. In 1843, it was still quite easy. So that is the specimen case, and that is what they were tried for, and that is what um, the whole gang were found guilty of. Now... 
Even though Fletcher was, uh, sorry, Barber, even though Barber was a solicitor, he wasn't a criminal lawyer, he wasn't a litigator. So he didn't maybe act in his own best interest. He did try to get himself tried separately from the others, uh, but unsuccessfully. But I suppose the poor man was still bumbling around in a state of utter shock. Um, and he was in the disadvantage of being in a prison, which is not where he ever expected to be um, in his life. So he was tried along with the others. Uh, and they were all found guilty. And two of them, Barber and Fletcher, were transported. And they were transported for life. Uh, of the others, um, the two women were given two years imprisonment each, and uh, Sanders was transported for seven years. But it was judged that Fletcher was the ringleader, which indeed he was, and that Barber was absolutely in league with him, which he wasn't. So the two of them were given the harshest sentence, and they were transported um, on a ship called the Agincourt, with, where there were 224 prisoners, and they were sent to Van Diemen's Land, and they set sail on the 6th of July, 1844. It was November when they got there. So um, fair old voyage in a lovely, leaky old wooden ship. And they finally got there to Van Diemen's Land, or specifically Norfolk Island. Now, Norfolk Island wasn't just a penal colony. It was the one where the really, really bad people were sent. A lot of the convicts in Norfolk Island were people who had committed the worst crimes or who had committed another crime having already been transported. Uh, as you can imagine, penal colonies were pretty violent places. So um, there were men there who had committed murders in other penal colonies, I mean, sent to Norfolk Island. So as if it wasn't bad enough being transported when you were innocent, you got, poor Barber got sent to the worst possible place. Now, I said several times that he was in a state of shock and stunned um, silence, really, for quite some time. Once he was convicted, uh, he began to uh, regain consciousness, and he certainly got his voice back. He was a very articulate man. And once he started talking, he just did not shut up. When the ship, the Agincourt, uh, stopped for water and supplies somewhere in, in the, the, uh, South Africa, he was sending letters. Every time they made land, he was sending letters back home to people that he hoped would take up his cause. He was petitioning the Home Secretary. Basically, once he got his voice back, he did not shut up about proclaiming his innocence. And this may be why the governor of Norfolk Island, who was not a kind man uh, by a very long way, Major Childs, took against Barber particularly. And he gave him all the most unpleasant jobs to do. Now, normally you would think white-collar criminal, first offence, you would expect him to get a nice cushy job, uh, like um, doing some sort of library work or being a some sort of clerical work because, uh, you know, there was people like the chaplain and the governor needed um, <laughs> clerical assistance. They needed people who could write. They needed educated men, and they were generally in fairly short supply in most penal colonies. So uh, men who were less qualified than Barber were given quite nice, cushy jobs. Barber was given the worst ones. He wasn't quite required to scrub out the latrines with his own toothbrush, but it wasn't much better than that. And he was deliberately given the worst, most back-breaking jobs. And um, being as somebody who had spent most of his adult life uh, in a, a, a London office, he wasn't really made for hard physical labour. And it did take a considerable toll on his health, although it did not shut him up. He was, while protesting his own innocence and writing letters and getting people on his side, he was trying to help out and teach some of the other prisoners to read and write. But the governor didn't like this, and he removed uh, all uh, reading and writing materials from him and generally made his life as much of a misery 
as he reasonably could or unreasonably could. It says quite a lot about William Henry Barber that he did not give up. He just kept on. He was in Norfolk Island for a very long time. But uh, by dint of his eloquence and his letters, which he did manage to get out, some of them were smuggled out by the chaplain's wife. It really was, um, you know, it, it, it's all a bit great escape, really. And eventually, he did manage to persuade uh, in that the right people, i.e. the Home Secretary, that um, he was not guilty. Now, what did not help him was that Fletcher, who you'd think had nothing to lose because he'd been transported, and he incidentally got some quite nice jobs and seemed to have some sort of... Uh, um, pull with the prison authorities and with a lot of other prisoners. Um, he steadfastly refused for a very long time to actually admit that Barber was completely innocent. He did eventually, and then afterwards he kind of recanted and said, oh no, no, they were taking advantage of me or I was coerced. I don't believe a word of it because Fletcher was an extremely plausible con man and he, it, he, he did quite well out of Australia in the end. But eventually, um, the Home Secretary was convinced of uh, Barber's innocence, and he received a conditional pardon. And this is and the convict muster, um, which is actually 1849. William Henry Barber, who'd been uh, convicted at the Central Criminal Court, is given a conditional pardon. So he was at last free to leave the prison. He was delighted at last that his perseverance, this has gone on for five years. He's been in Australia, he's been in the penal colony in Norfolk Island for five years. And it hasn't killed him, which is pretty amazing. Finally gets his conditional pardon. So the, uh, the then governor uh, calls him in and says, uh, you have a conditional pardon, you're now free to leave. And he says, thank you very much. I'll be off then. Just one minute, Mr. Barber. You're forgetting something. What's that? Those are prison clothes you are wearing. There is nothing here that says you were entitled to take them with you. This is what I meant when I said he lost literally everything. Had it not been for the charity of one or two of the other prisoners and the then chaplain, not the one who'd helped um, pursue his case, he'd been transferred, but another chaplain. Had it not been for the charity of these few people, he would have walked out of there absolutely naked. As it was, they managed to get together a few rags and pieces so to cover his confusion. And that was him. Um, now, a conditional pardon was a good thing because it got you out of prison. What it did not do, however, was he was not free to return to the UK. He could go anywhere at all in the world. He was at liberty to do that, but he could not return to um, England unless he had a full pardon. So having left the prison with literally nothing at all except a few of other people's possessions, he then had to make his way back to England. He didn't have to, I suppose. He could have settled in Australia. Lots of uh, pardon prisoners or ticket of leave men did that. There were a number of other places he could have gone and in fact he had many offers. Uh, as I said, he was a very articulate man, and uh, he, he wrote to the newspapers. And the first thing he did was he managed to get some subscriptions from well-wishers in, in Australia uh, to help fund him on his way home. And we don't know precisely how he got all the way home. We know some of it. Uh, he certainly came home through India, and he managed to get on, on some ships but there were certainly some parts where he literally walked. Now, he was offered in a number of places uh, that he, he could have stayed in India. He could have uh, you know, many benefactors, people who admired him, as I think I would, and if I had a lot of money, um, I probably would have given him a few bob because uh, somebody who has got that much perseverance and sticking power 
uh, has got to be admired. But he resisted all offers. No, I would love to stay in India. That would be very nice. And he could have lived in comfort. He could probably have uh, used his, his legal training. But he was determined to get back to England and to properly clear his name. So eventually, he made it back uh, to France. And when he was in France, he found out that he had finally been granted uh, a full pardon, which meant that he could return to England, which he duly did. But that's not the end of the story. Getting back to England wasn't enough. He needed to clear his name. Well, technically, having the unconditional full pardon cleared his name. But what he really wanted, because he had lived for the law, was he wanted to get back his um, right to practice the law. Now, the law society is if nothing if not extremely cautious. And they were not really too keen on this. What he did achieve was he managed to get £5,000, a very considerable sum in those days, he managed to get £5,000 compensation from the government for his wrongful conviction. And I have seen that it's been reported that, that he was the first man who was able to do that. Uh, now, I haven't done enough research to find out if that was absolutely the case. Uh, but it seems plausible, and that's one of the reasons why the story was, was so newsworthy. And if you think, by the time he got back to England, um, it's the best part of a decade since the original case blew up. So the story was still in the public eye. And uh, one, once he was back in England and he petitioned, first of all, he got his compensation, which I think was quite some achievement. And having got that... He then uh, set about trying to get his law practice back. Now, this took quite a while. The uh, Court of Queen's Bench uh, was who he uh, appealed to. Now, I'm, I, I'm not a legal specialist by a long, long way, um, so I'm not very comfortable with legal records. But that was who he appealed to, and eventually he did get uh, a judgment uh, saying that he, he did get his license back to practice law. He doesn't seem to have done him a tremendous amount of good because, of course, he must have been a bit rusty and out of practice. And also, even though he had been utterly vindicated, it, he's probably not the first lawyer you'd choose to go to, really, because, well, there's no smoke without fire and all that sunshine and hard labour might have addled his brain a bit. So he doesn't seem to have uh, been able to return to anything like the... Uh, the, 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 the prosperous practice that he had before. But he did manage to get back uh, into the legal profession. And that is not everything we know about him. Now, what I, I didn't know when I started doing this research, or when I first wrote this talk, was how, it, how everything had turned out for all the parties concerned. I know a bit more now because I've done some more research. But one of the best things that happened was when I did this talk, I've done this talk twice before, once in Brisbane and once in Melbourne. And when I did the talk in Melbourne, before I did it, I was, I was doing a talk in the morning and then there was a lunch interval. And during the lunch interval, um, a gentleman came up to me and said, this um, talk you're doing this afternoon about the will forgeries. Does that involve Joshua Fletcher by any chance? It certainly does. It turns out that this man, who's called Dr. Martin Plain, he had been doing a lot of research. He'd been approaching it from a different perspective. He has a family connection, not a blood connection, not a descendant, not even a blood relative, but he does have a family connection with Joshua Fletcher. So he was quite interested in this man. So he knew a very great deal about Joshua Fletcher. He also knew a couple of things about Barber that I didn't know. And what I had guessed was that Fletcher, with, with his um, talents and reputation and what we knew of his behaviour, I had a feeling that he would have come out of this okay, which indeed he did. He managed to get himself a fairly cushy position while he was still a prisoner. He also um, did eventually get a, a pardon himself. 
he got, um, well, he became a, a probation pass holder in 1848, which was actually a little bit before uh, Barber got his, um, his conditional pardon. And, and he, he worked for a number of people in Hobart. And then um, sometime after that, he was granted a ticket of leave. That was in 1854 and uh, a conditional pardon sometime after that. Basically, he settled down in Australia. He married again. In fact, he married twice. He'd been married twice in England. Um, well, the first wife had died, so there was no bigamy involved. But the first wife in Australia, um, he married her, I think, while the, uh, the second wife in England was still alive. But then the other side of the world, who's counting? But he settled down in Australia, and he went back to being uh, you know, a bit of a player, did all right, made some money. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much what I thought was going to happen to him. Now, Sanders, who'd been transported for seven years, he too eventually, you know, he'd served his sentence, and he settled in Australia. I'm not so, I don't know what happened to the, uh, uh, the, the, the two women. Um, I may investigate that at some point. But... Um, Barber got his license back, and I also found out, uh, and I found this out from a newspaper report from an Australian newspaper, um, when he died. And he, he did outlive um, Fletcher, which may have caused some small satisfaction. Fletcher died in 1865, and Barber lived on until 1869. He's actually buried in Kensal Green Cemetery. And uh, there was a report of his death in um, an, an Australian newspaper, it was in the Hobart Mercury um, in, well, in 1870, because it takes a while for the news to get round. But he said, some old colonists may remember the case of a Mr. Barber, who many years since was sent to Norfolk Island to serve a lengthy imprisonment for an imputed forgery. He was unable to convince the imperial government of his innocence and not only obtained a remission of his sentence, but received a douceur of £5,000 from the British Parliament by way of compensation for his wrongful conviction. The European Mail says, the funeral of Mr W.H. Barber, who was compensated by Parliament for his unjust conviction in connection with the Fletcher will forgeries, took place on December the 24th at Kensal Green Cemetery. He died on December the 17th of heart disease in his 61st year. Death entry says um, he was 62, but who's counting? The case of Mr. Barber was remarkable as the first example of an innocent man obtaining compensation from a nation for a wrongful conviction by a criminal court, £5,000 having been voted to him by Parliament in 1859. So I was quite pleased to find that. He didn't seem to die a rich man. He doesn't seem to have left a will. So, um, But then he was a smart lawyer, um, and sometimes lawyers don't leave wills because they're smart enough to um, organise things so that there is no, um, nobody has to pay any tax. It's called inheritance planning. So that seems to be, uh, that, that wraps up the story of Barber. And this has just been a, a, a skate across the story. If you went into it in enormous detail, there is just a lot more to it. There are a lot of characters uh, that would be very interesting to pursue. The story of how the actual scams, the individual frauds were carried out, each one of those is fascinating in itself. And maybe one day I'll get round to finding out a bit more. But as I said, Dr. Plain in, in Australia has done a tremendous amount of research and he has written an article on it which shouldn't by now have been published. So I'm very much indebted to him for some of the leads that he gave me. Um, one of the things that he said was that Joshua Fletcher... Once he um, got his ticket of leave and he started his new life in Australia, he kept the name Fletcher, but he used the, fir the first names John William. And that was the name that he went by in Australia. And when he was in England, by his first marriage, he had three children, one of whom was called John William. Now, I don't know whether there was any contact at all between John William Fletcher, the real John William Fletcher, and his father, the false John William Fletcher. Uh, but I did find what appears to be the marriage of the uh, John, Fletcher, John William Fletcher, the son, in England. In um, about 1869, his father is Joshua, a surgeon, and he's about the right age. 
Um, but I can't find this man in the 1871 census or his wife. Now, I haven't looked tremendously hard, and there are all sorts of reasons why you don't find somebody, but there would be an interesting loose end to tie up. We could find out what happened to him. Barber himself, although I know a little bit about his origins, he was born in, uh, in Kent in 1807, and he seems to have been illegitimate. So it would be interesting to work out how um, an illegitimate child could actually rise to get a legal training and become a lawyer in the first place. There's an interesting story. Whether that uh, can be discovered, I don't know, but I'd be fascinated to find out. There are lots more possibilities here. There's a great deal of research that could be done. The Bank of England archives have got the records of the investigations, which would be pretty interesting, like a whole police procedural drama in itself. So there's quite a lot more that could be discovered. But um, I think you'll agree with me that that's very much a you-couldn't-make-it-up. Um, it starts in Dickensian London. You, you can see it, you know, the, the, the dark wood panelling. and the f It's in the middle of winter, so there's bound to be smog and everything. And then the other side of the world in the blazing sun... Um, it, it's just an incredible story, and I've only given you the bare bones of it. Now, I started by calling it the forgotten sensation, and that is largely true. I found a very brief mention of it in um, The Fatal Shore, but as far as I could see, it had remained pretty much undiscovered, although the, the records are all there and they're not at all difficult to find. It just doesn't seem to have been remembered, or so I thought... Because when I was um, playing around, just, just looking for some odd little bits of detail here and there, one of the sites which I used, which I highly recommend, is called Trove. It's an Australian site, and it has, uh, among other things, um, lots of Australian newspapers, all searchable, all digitised, and completely free. And I was searching on there, and I found just one last interesting um, postscript and this is a, a series of cigarette adverts in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1954. And there is a picture of a learner, of a learned judge. And the caption to the little picture of a courtroom scene says, The time, 1844. The place, the Central Criminal Court, London, with three judges sitting at the famous Will Forgeries trial. So, in 1954, somebody thought that it was a famous Will Forgeries trial. So maybe it wasn't quite as forgotten as I thought it was. Um, but I must say, I, it, uh, it's the first time I have ever ended a talk with a cigarette advert. <laughs> Thank you very much. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.